What is up, listeners of the world? My name is Jalen Tully, and welcome to J Talks. guys it's Jalen and welcome back for yet another episode of J Talks. This week's episode as I'm sure you are aware if you tuned into last week's episode is going to be a continuation of the episode that I did last week in regards to my vegetarian lifestyle. How I live, what I eat, how how I exist in this world as someone who doesn't eat any meat and hasn't for over a decade at this point. Last week, I talked about my own personal journey through vegetarianism. I also answered some commonly asked questions, um, debunked some common myths that people have about vegetarianism and what it means to live a plant-based lifestyle. I also talked about some of my favorite foods and some of the things that I still love to indulge in, despite the fact that meat is no longer a centerpiece of my meals. This week, I'm going to be answering some more commonly asked questions. I thought of some more in the last week that I should probably touch on, some questions that I've been asked that I want to answer publicly. And then I'm also going to be talking about why you should make the switch, not necessarily to vegetarianism. I'm not saying you should cut meat completely out of your diet and go completely cold turkey. However, and I will say this shamelessly and openly, I think there are certain advantages not only to ourselves and our own bodies and not only to our own bank accounts and the economy as a whole, but also to the environment and the world around us that would come from switching to a plant-based lifestyle and heating to a more, to a less meat-centric diet. Because this is a continuation of last week's episode, I'm not going to waste too much more time talking about it, and I just want to dive right in. So first things first, this is a question that I've gotten from my family, my friends, people who find out I'm a vegetarian, and quite honestly, this is also a question that I've had to kind of answer myself and come to terms with myself. That question being, will I raise my children vegetarian, and when the time comes, will I expect my husband to be vegetarian, and in turn, will I also make sure that my animals and the animals that I have and take care of live somewhat of a plant-based lifestyle? I made this all one question because it kind of falls under the same umbrella, however, I'm going to answer this question three completely different ways. So first, I'm going to answer the question of whether or not I'm going to force a vegetarian lifestyle on my pets. And my answer to that is never in a million years will I make an animal that is not meant to live a plant-based lifestyle live a plant-based lifestyle. I have seen this idea gain traction on social media. I don't think it's super, super prevalent given that vegetarianism is still a a pretty rare thing in society. However, I am seeing this gain traction more and more as it's becoming a little bit of a controversy, and I'm going to come out and say it. As someone who has lived a plant-based lifestyle, as someone who's been a vegetarian for the majority of my life, and who also has a bunch of pets, I have dogs, I have cats, I have a ferret, I think that people who do this are are abusive. I think that this is a form of abuse in their animal, committed against their animals. And I'm not afraid to say that because, like I said, I'm a vegetarian. I I don't, for me personally, I don't see meat as being a central or imperative way for me to live my life. But for animals like cats, like dogs, like ferrets who are obligate carnivores, it it is an essential part of their diet and and it is an essential part of how they stay healthy and happy. For those who don't know, I'm not going to get too deep into like an ecological lesson right now, but an obligate carnivore is an animal that needs meat to be a centralized part of their diet. And this is due to the fact that there are some proteins, there are some minerals, there are some essential nutrients within animal meat and blood that are essential to the way these animals are able to function, essential to the way their joints and bones and muscles are able to grow and function. 
and a great example of this is taurine. Taurine is a nutrient found only in animals. And it is essential to how almost all of the animals I just listed that I own function. It's essential to cat survival, it's essential to dog survival, and it's essential to ferret survival. And I want to make the point very clearly that this is not this is not up for debate. This isn't like, oh, you could get taurine from another from another source. You could get these nutrients from another source. A lot of these nutrients are only found within animal flesh. And it's not the and these aren't up for debates. These nutrients are nutrients that these animals need in order to survive. And even though I'm a vegetarian, and even though my personal beliefs, opinions, and knowledge about a plant-based lifestyles and how living them can not only mitigate our own risk for death, disease, and injury, but also mitigate the, the environmental impact that we have on the world around us. But my personal beliefs, opinions, and knowledge aside, I know enough to know that for me to force this lifestyle onto my pets, for me to force a plant-based diet onto my pets, especially pets who would not be able to survive or sustain one, that is abusive, that is irresponsible, and that is extremely selfish of me. So I will never ever force a plant-based lifestyle on an animal who will who cannot sustain it. I don't think that's fair, I don't think that's right, and I don't think it's right for anyone else to do either. Like I said, it not only shows my own selfishness, but it would also show my irresponsibility and the fact that if if I if I'm gonna have an animal that needs a certain diet that doesn't necessarily abide with my own personal beliefs, then I can't have that pet if I'm going to sacrifice that animal's safety and health for my own beliefs and my own social righteousness or whatever you want to call it. Okay, so that out of the way. Next, I want to delve into my future husband. If you're out there and listening, hi, how are you doing? But um, this is a question that I've gotten a lot, you know, oh, are you going to marry someone who, you know, doesn't eat meat? If, if your husband eat meat, are you going to cook it for him? Do you feel comfortable cooking meat? And the answer to that question is honestly, maybe, I don't know, quite honestly, I think it would be really hard for me to be with someone and want to spend the rest of my life with someone and, you know, start a family with someone who didn't at least try to see eye to eye on what I'm getting at when I talk about living a plant-based lifestyle and living a vegetarian lifestyle. I think that people who wholeheartedly shut themselves off from that lifestyle are at this point woefully ignorant because there are a lot of plant-based substitutes for meat. There are a lot of really good alternatives. And like I talked about last week, some of my favorite foods, almost all of my favorite foods have no meat or you can cook them with meat substitutes or you can cook them without meat. And so at this point in the year of 2021, I think someone who would be like, oh, I'm I'm never going to try a vegetarian based lifestyle. I'm, I'm never going to cut meat out of my life at least a little bit. At that point, that wouldn't so much be the fact that the person wasn't willing to adhere to my vegetarian lifestyle. At that point, it would be more based on that person's own ignorance. So I guess, I guess that kind of goes hand in hand now that I'm saying it out loud, but I don't like I don't know. The answer to that question would have to depend on, you know, the person, the circumstance, the the relationship that we have. But I would I would most likely try and try and coax if they weren't already adhering to a plant-based lifestyle, I would most likely try and coax my 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 future spouse to be towards a more a more plant-based lifestyle. I'm not saying he would have to completely cut it out, but especially if there were especially if there were certain dietary restrictions that meant that he had to include some meat in his lifestyle, because I know some people like that. I do know people who genuinely need red meat in their diets because they are anemic, because they have iron deficiencies, because they need the nutrients that are only found in animal meat in order to survive. Like, I know people like that. And, you know, like, like there, there are accommodations to be made. There are compromises to be made. I think that 
like I said, I think it would wholeheartedly depend on the relationship I had with that person and their own personal views, my own personal views, how they how they interacted, how they contradicted each other, and how they complimented each other as well. So answer to that question is probably, I would probably date someone who wasn't necessarily a vegetarian. I mean, every single other person I've dated hasn't been a vegetarian and it hasn't, it hasn't bothered me exponentially by any means. But as like I said, if I'm going to end up spending the rest of my life with this person, I would end up probably coaxing them towards a plant-based lifestyle eventually and hoping eventually that they would make the full switch. But I, I understand that's not the world we live in. I understand that's not the culture that we live in. You know, I'm, I'm not so woefully ignorant and I'm not so socially righteous in my own beliefs that I would be closed off to the realities of the world that we live in. Which leads nicely into the last part of this question, which is, will I raise my children to be vegetarian? Again, this is this is probably going to come down to how I feel at that moment in time when it comes down to me finally being a mother and how where we're at as as a world when it comes to vegetarian based lifestyles, where we're where I'm at with my significant other, where I'm at in my life. I quite honestly don't see myself switching back to eating meat at least permanently at any point in my life. I don't see myself as making meat a central part of my life at any point uh, for the rest of the time that I'm here. Um, with that being said, I I do think I will adopt the, the same answer to this question that I adopted with the spousal question on whether or not I would marry someone who was a vegetarian or what wasn't a vegetarian. I think I would urge for a more plant-based lifestyle for my kids and show them that plant-based eating is not only better for you and better for the environment, but it also can be fun and it can be good and it can be absolutely delicious. But I also understand that, you know, when my when I came to my mom about being vegetarian and she told me, you know, there there are certain there are certain nutrients and minerals within animal fats and within animal meat that you can't get from any other plant that you can't get from anything else that we consume as people. And I understand that a lot of those nutrients and minerals are actually integral to a child's growth. So like I said, I, th I think it would depend on where I'm at at that point in time. I think it would depend on where we're at societally at that point in time. But right now I would feel comfortable saying that I would, I would, I would strongly advocate for raising my children with a vegetarian lifestyle with some accommodations to what's healthiest for them. Because like I said with my animals, and like I will say with any other situation, someone's health and safety and wellness is my top priority, especially when it comes to things or people that I love, like my pets or my future children. If it is detrimental to my child's health, if it is healthier for them to maintain a meat-based lifestyle, I will do and commit to any accommodations that I can to make sure my child is happy, healthy, and safe. That will always be my top priority. I, Like I said, my, my social righteousness is not strong enough to override me doing what's right. So there are the answers to that question. Um, something, and this isn't really a question, the next thing I want to talk about, but this is something that I want to complain about because this is also what this podcast is for, is for me to complain. When I order something at a restaurant, that usually has meat, but I order it without meat, it's usually the same price. However, when I ask for guacamole or extra vegetables, it's an upcharge? That that makes no sense to me. I've always thought this, even from when I was a little girl and I'd, you know, eat out at restaurants and I'd notice this. It's always something that's bothered me. So say, for example, I get like a salad or something and it has chicken in it, like a chicken Caesar salad, let's say that. 
and I'm like, okay, can I get the chicken Caesar salad, but can I get it without chicken? And that salad comes out to being like $11.99 or something. The salad without the chicken is still going to be $11.99. But say I wanted to add avocados or some other vegetables on the side or get something else added to the salad. There is most likely going to be like a $2 upcharge for whatever vegetable I'm adding to my salad. How in God's green earth does that make sense? How does a vegetable that costs 50 cents to grow, pick, and ship here and then cut up give me a $2 upcharge to a salad that I took the chicken off that costed us $500 to grow that chicken and ship it here and get it manufactured and get it onto this plate. I don't understand, like I don't understand the logic and I understand it's like, oh, it's a money thing, like, oh, la, la. but it, it's, it's still, oh my, it's like one of my biggest pet peeves when I go out and like, I know we're not to the point where like I can complain about that and actually get like get the price deducted of having meat removed from a specific dish that I'm ordering, but it's it's just something that really annoys me, like genuinely irks me when I go out to eat. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, why did I remove $3 worth of chicken from this salad and the price of the salad somehow didn't change, but when I wanted to add cherry tomatoes, the price of the salad went up four dollars like I don't I, d I don't understand that's something that literally does not make any sense to me and it shouldn't matter if you're a vegetarian if you're a meat eater if you live some sort of plant-based lifestyle while still eating meat if you're a pescatarian I don't care what you are that in and of itself is so annoying and I think we can all agree on that no matter what walks of life we come from no matter where we come from on the political spectrum it's not fair that when I remove something from a meal there's the price doesn't change, but when I want to add something else, there's an upcharge of like $5. That's ridiculous to me. Next things next, I want to talk about my cravings and the cravings that I have because, yes, even though I've been a vegetarian for almost a decade, I still do get cravings for some types of meat. Definitely not all of them, definitely not a bunch of different kinds, and it's definitely not to the point where I question whether or not I want to stay vegetarian. And keep meat out of my life, but it's it definitely it, I definitely do get cravings sometimes. And I want to talk about this for one very specific reason. That reason being, I want to show people that this is normal. I feel like this is this is the hardest part of being a vegetarian is like having those cravings in the beginning and having those you know wants for meat when you're trying to cut it out of your diet. And for some reason, vegetarians don't want to talk about it. Vegans don't want to talk about it. But I'm here to tell you, we all get cravings for meat sometimes. We all, even if it's not expansive, even if it's not, you know, craving every single type of meat, there are still one or two types of meat that I assure you every single vegetarian or vegan gets a hankering for every once in a while. And I want to break down that barrier because like I said, nobody talks about it. So when people do want to make that switch and they have these cravings, they think they're failing at their diet. When in reality, every single person who cuts meat out of their diet feels like this. Every single person who cuts any food group out of their diet probably feels like this. So I do want to talk about my cravings very, very quickly. And I also want to talk about how I combat them and how I handle them and how I don't succumb to them. So I want to start out by saying I really don't get cravings for a lot. I don't really get cravings for any red meats. Like I don't, I don't want to sit down and like devour a burger or have a steak or have a sirloin. Like that stuff isn't appetizing to me in general. And quite frankly, even when I did eat meat, it wasn't really appetizing to me. I didn't really like steak. I didn't really like hot dogs. Like uh, that stuff in general is just kind of gross to me. But I do, however, I do get some cravings for like chicken wings, like a, like a good plate of buffalo wings. Oh, I sometimes I really do have a hankering for some chicken wings. 
Um, and the other thing is seafood. This is also a really weird one because usually people don't really like seafood, but oh my god, I loved seafood when I still ate meat. Ugh, there's just something like a, like a teriyaki tuna steak sounds delicious. Oh, like, like a seafood boil. This is one that I've been craving so much recently, especially since I've been on Instagram and I've been seeing those food videos with the seafood boils. Like a, like a Cajun butter seafood boil with like crab legs and shrimp and lobster tails. You guys have no idea how good that sounds to me right now. Like I'm salivating. It is it is difficult for me to still talk in an understandable way because there is so much drool accumulating in my mouth at the moment. Yet I have never succumbed to those cravings. I have never veered off my path and had a chicken wing. I've never veered off my path and had a piece of shrimp or eaten a lobster tail. Like that's never, I've never done it. And everyone deals with their cravings differently. I also want to say that now. I How I deal with my cravings might not be what works for you. It might just make your cravings worse, actually. So I also want to say that before I talk about how I handle these. First thing I do is I, I, I remind myself why I'm a vegetarian in the first place. And I remind myself that... I've been doing this for so long and it would probably be more of a disruption to my lifestyle if I went back to eating meat than if I just continued to stay on my path of plant-based eating as I have. So that's like that's something that really helps ground me when it's getting when I'm when I'm having these cravings and when it's getting really like irresistible to the point where I want to eat it. The next thing that helps me curb my cravings, and this one might be really, really weird, and this is the one that I was talking about that might not work for you, and in in all honesty, it might just make your cravings worse. But I try to imagine what the food would be like to taste. I try to imagine what the food would taste like. And that is something like it, it's it's satisfying, but in the weirdest way possible because I'm not actually eating it, but I can I can picture it in my mouth and I can feel it on my taste buds on what it feels like to eat and what it tastes like. That one is super, super weird. And I completely understand if other vegetarians are like, uh, you are the only person that does that. But like I said, there are different techniques for everyone. That personally, that's something that works for me. Personally, it really helps to curb my cravings um, by like picturing what the food that I'm craving would taste like. Like that's something that really does help me. Like I said, it might not work for you, but it does work for me. And overall, like I said at the beginning of this segment, I try to remind myself that it's normal. I don't get bogged down in my cravings. I'm not like, oh, I'm failing at my vegetarian lifestyle because I'm not. I'm still a vegetarian almost a full decade later. I'm still maintaining this lifestyle nearly flawlessly, might I add. And it's it's not, it doesn't make you a failure. It doesn't make you a bad vegetarian. It doesn't make you a bad vegan to have these cravings and to want to eat meat. There's some meat that's good. Like, a, like seafood boils are good. Chicken wings are good. And I'm not denying that for a minute. But my personally, my dedication to my vegetarianism is far outweighs what I want to eat in terms of my cravings, especially because nine times out of 10, I can find a substitute or I can find something that quite honestly, I think tastes better anyways. And you know, that helps curb my cravings which is also another great tip. It doesn't, I don't personally really do this a whole lot, but I know some people that do. If you are having cravings, try finding something else and try filling your stomach with something else that you also really like, like another one of your favorite foods. Because I, I feel like a lot of people find that once you start eating something else that you really like, the, the, the thought of that other food goes out the window. Because matter of factly, a lot of our cravings come when we're hungry or when we need a meal. So if you curb your appetite, those cravings are going to be much less likely to come back and much less likely to pester you. 
All right, we are getting into the final segment of this two-part series, why you personally should change your diet. I am not automatically saying that you should go pescatarian or vegetarian or vegan and completely cut meat out of your diet, but there are certain things that come with eating meat, especially red meat, that are detrimental to your health, that are detrimental to your wallet, and that are detrimental to our environment. And that's what I'm here to talk about now. Because if you won't do it for your environment or even your own body, you might want to do it for your wallet because once I start reading off the numbers of how much vegetarians save a year on average on their meals, you might want to make that switch. First things first, I want to talk about personal and health reasons as to why you should switch to meat. And I want to say this very, very quickly right now and I want you to listen to what I'm going to say now. We do not have clinical and randomized trials to show us the data about how much healthier vegetarian eating truly is over meat-eating diets. There are not enough people in this country. Only about 6% of people in our country are vegetarian. There are not enough people in our country to sustain those types of trials and experiments in order to see those numbers outright. So all of the data that most people have on vegetarian lifestyles when it comes to our health comes from diets that we know mimic vegetarian lifestyles, diets that have high concentration of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and a small concentration of meat. So for example, a Mediterranean diet. Mediterranean diets are considered the healthiest diets in the world. People in the Mediterranean usually have longer lifespans. They usually have better quality of life. They are much, much healthier. They are able to be much more active because of the healthy lifestyle and diets that Mediterranean eating provides. So the majority of the data, the majority of the information that I found and that is currently existing out there on the internet today is based off of the data that we have on Mediterranean diets. So I just wanted to say that now so nobody can come for me and be like, we don't actually have data on vegetarian lifestyles. I mean, technically we kind of do, but it's not, it's not so much a quote unquote vegetarian lifestyle. A lot of this data is based off of Mediterranean diets. So I just, like I said, I wanted to just get that out of the way and say that now. But there's also some data that we have that we that we know for a fact, just based off of polling, just based off of surveys and whatnot. So for example, we know that vegetarians have the lowest average BMIs, while meat eaters have, on average, the highest BMIs. And I say that also knowing that BMIs are kind of an objective and BS way of judging whether or not someone's healthy or judging whether or not someone's obese. Because I know if we go off of BMI, then The Rock would be literally the most unhealthy person on the planet. And looking at him, you know he's just pure muscle. So again, I know that BMIs are pretty objective. I know that BMIs are really kind of BS when it comes to weighing out and figuring out whether or not someone is a healthy individual. But it's still how we judge body mass. So I think including this little piece of information is crucial, especially when it comes to the other information that I'm going to give you guys. To continue, meat-free diets can and do decrease the risk of colon cancer, they can actually reduce the risk of all types of cancer, and they result in a 12% lower risk of death overall. And this is due to the fact that an overall increase of meat within a person's diet comes with an increased risk of total mortality, heart disease, high cholesterol, and type 2 diabetes, all of which can lead to death, extreme injury, and other life-threatening illnesses. And I also want to note more importantly that all of this is much more prevalent within red meats. So your beefs, your porks, your lambs, your veals, all of it, all of your red meats are much higher in cholesterol, much higher in those unhealthy fats, and they, the more red meat that someone has concentrated in their diet, the more at risk they are for these types of diseases, cancers, and illnesses. 
And this is partly due to the fact that instead of just having one big chunk of the same type of protein and fat within each of your meals, the proteins and fats that you're getting, you're getting from other resources and you have a more expansive types of the fats and proteins that you're getting, a lot of which are much more healthy to your lifestyle, a lot of which are much more better than you than the fats and proteins that you'd be getting from meat in the first place. For example, the average vegetarian diet consists of 25 more servings of vegetables, 14 more servings of whole grains, and 8 more servings of fruit than the average meat-eating diet. And I want to note that eat, that people are going to come for me and be like, well, where are you getting your protein? You know, people need protein. And you are completely right. People do need to get their protein, which is why I want to point out that for a person who weighs about 165 pounds, they need an average of 50 grams of protein per day in order to sustain themselves healthily. Both a vegetarian diet and a meat-eating diet meet this requirement each day in terms of the grams of protein per day in these diets. Granted, a vegetarian diet has less protein that you get per day with 60 grams, while a meat-eating diet, you get 96 grams of protein per day on average. But I just wanted to point out that you still meet the requirements in order to sustain a healthy and happy lifestyle on a vegetarian diet. I, however, do just want to say that if you are going to make the switch, if you want to make the switch, if you're thinking about making the switch, make it a gradual switch. I know if you're someone who truly sees this as something that they should do or need to do or they're obligated to do, which by no means do you have to feel that way, but if you are a person who feels this way, the switch needs to be gradual. You can't just cut meat out of your diet, especially if you haven't done the research on how to get your proteins in, especially if you haven't done the research on what types of protein substitutes you'll need, what types of fat substitutes you'll need, what types of iron substitutes you'll need. The switch needs to be gradual because you need to give your body time to, to acclimate to the new diet that you're introducing, and you need to give yourself time to figure out what works best for you without just throwing your body into a completely new diet just, you know, willy-nilly. That can be potentially dangerous and unhealthy for you, and obviously your health, your safety, your happiness, and your well-being needs to be your first priority with whatever diet you are choosing to partake in. However, I do also want to note that you will overall, once you get the hang of a, of a vegetarian diet, once you get the hang of the new diet that you're introducing in your life, you will overall, at least for me, with the people in my life and for myself, I notice that I'm much more conscious about what I'm eating in general, not just, you know, making sure it doesn't have meat in it, making sure it doesn't have gelatin in it, making sure, you know, it's completely vegetarian and it doesn't have any animal products in it. But I'm also much more conscious about what I'm putting into my body in terms of, oh, is it all natural? Is it whole grain? Is it something that's going to actually benefit myself or am I just putting crap into my body? I say, even though the last episode that I did of this, I was talking about how my favorite foods were French fries and pasta and cakes and cookies. But all right, Jalen, completely understandable. All right, next things. Next, we are going to talk about the economic impact for yourself individually of going vegetarian. And I say this completely knowing and understanding that meat alternatives themselves can be really expensive with the Beyond Meat, with the, you know, vegetarian meat crumbles or the fake chicken nuggets or the fake chicken patties or fake bacon. Or I understand that all of that can be pretty expensive, especially since it's pretty new on the market. And there's so much more that goes into making it in terms when compared to, you know, normal meat products, quote unquote, normal meat products, I should say. However, for the sake of this episode, I am going to be talking about overall fruits, vegetables, and the things that a lot of people increase the amount of in their diets in order to make up for the lack of meat that they are getting otherwise. And when compared to fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and all of that, meat is much more expensive, making the average vegetarian diet much, much cheaper. 
Vegetarians in the United States save an average of 7% on their grocery shopping every single year when compared to the average meat eater, and in the UK, that number is 15%. Meat eaters spend $23 more a week on groceries, which means that the average vegetarian spends $750 less a year on grocery costs. That's literally rent in some United States cities. The average cost of a meat-eating meal is $6, meanwhile the average cost of a vegetarian meal is $5. And especially as meat prices are continuing to rise with COVID and as people continue to eat less meat, these numbers are just going to get further and further apart. So if you won't do it for yourself and if you won't do it for the planet, do it for your wallet. Also, I want to say that I understand I'm saying a lot of numbers right now. I'm saying probably a lot of stuff that people are like, eh, is this actually accurate? I am going to leave the links for all of the information I am using in this episode in the description. So you can check my links, you can look it up yourself, and you can make sure that I'm not pulling the wool over your eyes in order to push forward my own agenda. All right, last but most certainly not least, I am going to talk about the environmental and planetary impact that going vegetarian can have on the world around us. And in order to do that, we have to understand our carbon footprint. And in order to understand the carbon footprint of our food, we must first understand our carbon footprints in general. Each household in the United States produces roughly 48 tons of greenhouse gases, with the top three contributors of that being transport, housing, and food. And I want to note that these are just rough estimates, and these are averages, which means there are probably houses in the United States that produce 100 tons of greenhouse gases a year, and there are probably houses in the United States that produce 2 tons of greenhouse gases a year. However, this is just the average. Food alone produces 8 tons of greenhouse gases per household, which is 17% of the overall total. And I think it is extremely important to note that new data and research is actually showing us and suggesting that half of all man-made emissions, man-made carbon emissions, come from our agricultural livestock production. So I just think that's an important fact to note. One of the sites that I was actually getting all of my information on, greeneats.com, has a chart that shows how much CO2 is produced per kilo of food that is produced. So that can either be a kilo of meat, kilo of vegetables, kilo of cheese, etc. It breaks it all down. And also on top of that, it also shows how many miles driven in a car that's equivalent to. So I'm just going to read you some of these right now. Like I said, all of the links will be in the description. You can check out this chart for yourself. But I just thought this was so interesting to look at and see it all broken down like this. The most unsustainable food on this chart is actually lamb. For one kilo of lamb meat, 39.2 kilos of carbon dioxide are produced. And that is equivalent to 91 miles being driven in a car. Second is beef. Honestly, I thought beef would be number one, but apparently I was wrong. Beef, for every one kilo of beef, there's 27 kilos of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere, which is equivalent to 63 miles being driven in a car. Right below that, coming in at number three, is cheese. Oh, that makes me feel bad, especially because I was so adamant about loving cheese in my last episode. Oh, okay. Self-reflection time. That was kind of uncomfortable. Anyways, for each kilo of cheese produced... That comes out to 13.5 kilos of carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere, which is equivalent to 31 miles being driven in a car. Right below that, coming in at number four, and this is the last one I'm going to meet read when it comes to meat and animal products. Coming in at number four is pork. For every kilo of pork produced, there is 12.1 kilos of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere, which is equivalent to 28 miles being driven in a car. 
Now I'm going to go down to the first fruit, vegetable, plant on this list, which is potatoes. For every kilo of potatoes produced, there is only 2.9, I say only, but this is still not good. There's 2.9 kilos of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere, which is equivalent to driving seven miles in a car. But I say only because in comparison to the lamb, which was 39.2 kilos being released into the atmosphere, equivalent to 91 miles being driven in a car, you see how, how great and how astronomical that discrepancy is. Right below that, coming in at number 10, is rice. For every kilo of rice produced, there's 2.7 kilos of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere, which comes into about six miles being driven in a car. And at number 16, coming in at the lowest on this chart, are lentils. For every kilo of lentils that are produced, there is only 0.9 kilos of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere, which is equivalent to driving two miles in a car. So lentils are actually the only thing on this list that like the, the kilos of lentils produced outweighs the kilos of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere, which I, I didn't even know any, I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that lentils were this sustainable. But there's like 16 different types of food in this chart, so I wholeheartedly recommend checking it out for yourself on your own time and, and actually seeing the numbers in front of you. It's much different hearing someone else say it to you than it is to like see it, like see the numbers in front of you. So like I said, wholeheartedly recommend checking out that chart on your own time when you can. And I'm, I'm sure that this brings up a question of what makes meat so harmful? What what makes meat so produce so much more CO2? What makes meat produce be so much less sustainable than vegetables? Like what causes this? And you know, it, it, I'll I'll say the obvious ones now. Meat is much more to transport. It takes much more room to transport cows than it does to transport the same amount of beans or legumes or fruits or vegetables. Like that's just a you know kind of just like off the top of my head. That's just something that I think is really obvious because cows are weigh so much more because you can fit so much less of them in an area versus, you know, fruits, vegetables, etc. Another is land. 70% of the agricultural land in our world is set aside for livestock and used for livestock production. That means that 30% of the global and fertile land that we have on our earth is used for livestock production. If you took that land and grew vegetables with it, you could grow four times the amount of food in half the time and have it cost a third of the price than it would be to raise livestock. Another example is water. If you took a baby calf and counted the amount of water that it would take to raise that baby calf until it's old enough to start producing milk, the amount of milk produced in pints compared to the amount of water used to raise that cow in pints is 1,000 to 1. That means that for every pint of milk produced, that cow consumes 1,000 pints of water. If you took that water out of the equation and instead of using it to raising cows, you could solve the global water crisis that a lot of developing countries are currently facing. And finally, probably the most devastating impact of agricultural livestock production is the methane produced. Animal burps and farts produce methane, which is a gas that is 84 times more potent than carbon dioxide. 84 times more potent. And even though methane doesn't stay as long as our atmosphere as carbon dioxide does, it holds much more heat. It retains heat much better than carbon dioxide does, which means that initially it does so much more damage to our environment and so much more damage to our climate than carbon dioxide does. And while methane is normal for all of us to produce, yes, even humans, we produce methane in our own burps and farts, we overproduce livestock in order to sustain our diets. 
And while we're also overproducing them and putting more of these animals into the earth and helping them contribute to climate change by overproducing them in order to sustain our drive and want for meat, we also feed them things that exacerbate the amount of gas that they are producing. Cows, lambs, pigs, all of these animals are meant to have grassy diets. They're meant to eat grass and hay and natural grains. But in order for them to grow, instead of, you know, feeding them grass and it taking almost a half a decade for a cow to grow from a calf to a full-grown cow that is ready to go to a slaughterhouse, when you feed them corn and soy, that process takes less than two years. However, cows, lambs, pigs, any animal, they're not only meant to survive off of corn and soy, even though it helps them grow faster and build muscle faster so you can send them off to slaughter sooner, it, it's unsustainable for them. And that's why they are producing so much more gas than they would be if they were fed grass-fed diets. It's not healthy for them, it's not healthy for us, and it's certainly not healthy for our planet. Meat diets actually have the highest carbon footprint, coming in at 3.3 tons per person. Meanwhile, vegan diets have the lowest at 1.5 tons per person. I'm not telling you what to do with your body. I'm not telling you what to do with your diet, and I'm certainly not telling you what to do with your life. I don't, I don't believe in pressuring people into veganism or vegetarianism. I, I don't think that's effective, and it certainly doesn't work. People don't like being peer pressured. People don't like being told to do, especially not in this country. However, I do believe in arming people with the necessary information that they would need in order to make an educated and inferred decision on what's best for them and what's best for our planet. And that's exactly what I was hoping to do with this series of episodes. I was hoping to arm you guys with the necessary information that it would take to make an educated decision. And if after this you still choose to eat meat and you still choose to make meat a part of your diet, so be it. But at least you have the information and at least it's out there. And I also want to note, like I've said a half dozen times in this series, I, you don't have to go vegan. You don't have to go vegetarian. You don't have to completely cut meat out of your diet. I know for a lot of people that's not feasible. And I know for some people that's not even possible in terms of what you need in order to keep yourself healthy and well. However, you know, there's, there's that trend that's like, oh, meatless Mondays. You know, if, even if you cut meat out of your diet one day a week, you will be making such a big difference for yourself. You'll be making such a big difference for your wallet. And you'll be making such a big difference for the world and animals around you. So again, make whatever choice you want to make, but at least now you're armed with the information to be able to make an inferred and educated choice. Finally, before I begin to wrap up this week's episode and in turn this little two-part mini-series, I want to say that I don't think I'm better than anyone because I'm a vegetarian. I, I want to make that very, very clear. I feel like a lot of people have this misconception that I think I'm, you know, better than someone just because I don't eat meat and they eat meat. There are much more substantial qualities that I possess as a person that make me a good person that does not revolve around eating meat. Just like there are much more substantial qualities that I possess that probably make me a worse person in some ways than the average person that don't revolve around me eating meat. If there's someone who doesn't eat meat but goes out and molests children and murders people four days a week, I, I'm not going to think they're a good person just because they don't eat meat. Just like if there's a person who eats meat but donates all of their money to shelter puppies and volunteers at the homeless shelters in their area, I'm going to think that person's a better person than me even though they eat meat. Eating meat is not, it's not a, it's not a character flaw. It's not something that I judge people on. It's not something that I look down on people because of by any means. And it's certainly not something that makes me think that I'm better than every other person who eats meat in this world. There are aspects of my character that I pride myself in much more than me being a vegetarian. There are things that 
there are qualities that I possess. There are things that I do. There are, you know, actions that I make an intrinsic part of my everyday life that I think qualify me to be a good person. And not eating meat isn't, it's, it's definitely one of them, but it's not high enough on the on the totem pole in order to justify me being disrespectful, rude, or looking down on other people just for their own dietary choices. I, th- I know this is probably the first time you've ever heard a vegetarian say this. Wow, we're not all annoying. Crazy, right? <laughs> but the but the truth of that statement is that a lot of us think like this. A lot of us are taking it upon ourselves to make our own personal choices and quite frankly we really don't care what other people do. I mean, we care in the sense that like it would be uh, e- ecologically and environmentally better if everyone didn't eat meat, but we don't care in the way we're like you know, we we just want to eat and we just want to eat what we want to eat without being disrespected and shamed and, you know, made fun of, which is stuff that I've dealt with my entire life for my own dietary choices, which I'm going to add something. I think it's so rich that vegans and vegetarians have the reputations of being annoying and bullying people, even though I have never taken it upon myself to disrespect someone on their own dietary choices, yet I have been continuously disrespected by classmates, family members, friends, co-workers on the dietary choices that I make. So I just wanted to point that out right now. Hmm. But um, real talk, you guys, this this has been an amazing conversation. This has been something that I, I really, I really like talking about. This has been something that I really like having conversations on. So I hope that, you know, even if you don't go full vegetarian, even if you don't go full vegan, I, I, I hope that I, ma- I made an impression. I hope that I I made you feel more comfortable about the thought of going vegetarian at the very least. And I hope that I opened your eyes and gave you some insight into what being a vegetarian actually entails and what a vegetarian lifestyle actually consists of. Because that's quite frankly educating people and having these uncomfortable conversations and breaking down some of these barriers that we have between us. That is all I'm hoping to do with this podcast and this episode and the last week's episode are absolutely no different. All right, we are getting to the end of this week's episode, which means that I have to give you guys what is in my rotation this week. What is in my rotation this week is not a TV show. It's not a movie. It's not a documentary. It's not a book. It's not music which kind of makes it fall outside of the norms of what's usually in my rotation. But I think you guys will really enjoy it, and it fits in nicely with this week's episode. I want to recommend you guys some fake meat alternatives that you can try. I know you guys are probably rolling your eyes right now, but please give it a chance because both of the both of the things that I'm going to recommend to you guys have gotten the stamp of approval from my meat-eating father, and they're actually just really good. So again, like I said last week... If you go into any encounter with a meat substitute with an open mind, I'm sure you'll like it a lot more than if you go in with a closed mind thinking that it's going to suck and it's not going to taste like meat or that or you're expecting it to taste like meat in the first place. The first recommendation I have is the Beyond Beef, is whether it's the ground beef or whether it's the actual meat patties and like the, um, I don't, I'm, oh my god, I just had the biggest brain fart ever, whether it's the actual hamburgers, um, but these are so good and I, I love these so much. I haven't had a burger since I was a child and eating the Beyond Beef burgers literally threw me back to the last time I had a burger over a decade and a half ago. The, it's like if you, no matter how you, I like cooking them preferably in the toaster oven. Like I like cooking them in my toaster oven or like on the grill. That's how I think they turn out the best, but you can cook them in the regular oven. You can cook them in a skillet and they'll still turn out incredible. 
I love the Beyond Beef because it it, it kind of bleeds. It has like that bleed that a burger has. It has that chew that the burger has. That's like the top thing I hear people complain about whenever they try a vegan burger or a vegetarian burger is like, oh, it doesn't have the chew. It doesn't bleed like a burger. It doesn't look like a burger. It doesn't taste like a burger. I have had several meat eaters try this and they've told me that if I didn't tell them it wasn't meat, they honestly probably wouldn't have noticed. And at this point in time, it's pretty expansively available at the, at the vast majority of grocery stores. So you could honestly go out and find it anywhere. It's a little more on the expensive side, obviously, but honestly, in terms of the other meat substitutes I've had, in terms of the other meat alternatives I've had, it is much cheaper than the alternatives that I've had to buy in the past or that I have bought in the past. So I definitely recommend that. And then the other thing that I recommend is the Morningstar Bacon Strips. And I'm going to give you a little heads up real quick. At least the Beyond Beef kind of kind of looks like beef. It has that look, it has that texture, it has that feel. The Morningstar Bacon, you're going to look at it for the first time and probably be really off-put because it, it kind of looks like a smushed candy cane. Like it's like bright red with like white stripes in it. Like it doesn't look like bacon at all. But I've gotten the stamp of approval from my father on this one. Once you cook it up, once you fry it up, it, it like shrivels and has like the same like, I don't know how to say it, like shape that bacon does, I guess. You know how like when you cook bacon, it like shrivels and gets like those like waves in it on the sides. I don't know how to describe it. For people who eat bacon or have seen bacon be cooked before, you know what I'm talking about. It also, once you like cook it up, it has that crunch, like that crispiness that bacon has on the outside while also like having like that chewiness towards the center. It smells like bacon, it tastes like bacon. Like I said, I've gotten the stamp of approval from my meat-eating father, so I don't know, it's pretty good in my opinion. Definitely recommend trying it, but again, if you go into it expecting real bacon, and if you are too quick to judge, then you're not gonna be happy with it. Go into it with an open mind, and you will be impressed, I promise you. But yeah, those are the two things that are in my rotation this week, have been in my rotation every week for the last several years, and probably will continue to be in my rotation because they are just that good. All right, guys, we have come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Thank you so much for listening to what I had to say, even if you didn't want to enjoy it, even if you didn't enjoy it. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you expanding your mind and listening with an open mind and making it this far. It means a lot. If you enjoyed this week's episode and think someone else could learn something from it, share it with your family, your friends, post it on your Instagram story, share it with your relatives, show it to your grandma, listen to it in the car on your way to a soccer game. I don't care. Get more people to listen to it. Also, be sure to follow me on all of my social media platforms. All of my handles are just at Jalen Tully. Also, just a quick reminder, all of the links of the sites where I got my information from, all of the links where I got my charts and my numbers and my data, those will all be in the description below if you want to check them out for yourself and do your own research and do your own digging into what's best for you and your body. All right, guys, that is, I think that's all I've really had to say this episode. I am so happy you guys have tuned in. I'm so happy you guys have made this this far, assuming you're still listening. As always, you know the drill. Always be sure to leave this episode and every episode ready to educate often, learn freely, and always love equally. Make what choice is best for you, your body, and our planet. Thank you so much for tuning in, you guys. Take care, and I will always talk to you next week.
Thank you so much for tuning in, you guys. Have a good week, and as always, I'll talk to you next Sunday.